Welcome to Living Free Today, a ministry of Cornerstone Fellowship in San Lorenzo, California. These podcasts are the weekly sermons of Dr. Michael L. Wilson. Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament. It's right before 2 Corinthians. Book of the letters, actually, that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. 1 and 2 Corinthians were letters of correction, were letters telling them that they missed the point in many ways and that they needed to get back on track. And one difficulty that they had back then is that the church at Corinth had this teaching that was going around that there was no resurrection of the body. And that as such, of course, then Jesus was not resurrected. And they believed that it was kind of a spiritual and righteous living sort of religion. And not a Jesus Christ rose from the dead and is at the right hand of God. And we follow him. And so there is a lot of correction in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Now chapter 15, right in the middle of 1st Corinthians, Paul goes into a very straight and linear defense of the resurrection and of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He starts by saying, Now I would remind you, And so this is something that is known. This is something that is understood. That he, this isn't brand new information that he does telling things that they had been taught before and seems to have forgotten and central to what he is speaking about is the gospel. He said, remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received in which you stand. And people may say, back in Corinth, and people today say, well, what is the gospel? And Paul does not leave it alone. He actually goes, and in verse 3, for I delivered to you as first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, when Paul says, in accordance with the Scriptures, he is saying that this is a prophecy that came before. The before time for Paul would have been the Old Testament. As Paul is writing the letters to 1st and 2nd Corinthians and to Galatia and to Philippi and things of this nature, they are being copied, but they hadn't been collected into a New Testament yet. All of Paul's education, all of Paul's knowledge of who Jesus Christ is came from the Old Testament and Old Testament prophecy. And so Paul is saying that he's not making this up, that if you look in the Old Testament, you will find passages, some of them kind of vague, some of them very clear, 
that talk about a man that we now know to be Jesus who will die in accord, die for our sins in accordance to Scripture. Even back in the Old Testament, it was understood that you're in my sin. I couldn't work it off. I couldn't pay it off myself. I couldn't go to debtor's prison and work to get the debt for my sin paid for. Our sin is so great, even today, back then, every person who has lived, sin is so great that the only way that it can be taken care of is for God to come up with a sacrifice. And in the Old Testament, you, you wander through books like Leviticus, and it gives you very exact steps to take to sacrifice an animal to gain forgiveness for a short period of time, the most successful sacrifices were the ones that lasted a year, but other ones would only last a week or would only last a month or would only last until the next festival and you had to do it again and again and again. And so the teaching the people of the world that sacrifice of blood was necessary for the forgiveness of sins is the forerunner of Jesus Christ who died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, that he, <coughs> that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. In other words, all the important aspects of, the, of Holy Week and that goes on with the celebration of Jesus' last week on this earth were all predicted in scripture and people have have looked and your low estimate is there's 150 specific scriptures about Jesus Christ in the Old Testament people who go for types and anti-types and metaphor are putting out a number closer to 1200 prophecies in the Old Testament proving that the point of Scripture is Jesus Christ. Scripture is a single story about Jesus Christ culminating in his death, burial, and resurrection on the third day. And then Paul goes into eyewitness testimony. Now, depending on which cop shows you watch, either they really like eyewitness testimony or the DA is all, now you can never trust eyewitness testimony. So it depends on what sort of plot they want to have on the TV show. If you go for true, honest eyewitness testimony, not what was Jesus wearing, but was Jesus alive? That's what we're looking at in this eyewitness testimony. Then you can, you can have a better understanding and a better belief that these things are true. One commentator many years ago said, As a lawyer, I have made a prolonged study of the evidence for the events of the first Easter day. For me, the evidence is conclusive. And over and over again in the high court, I have secured the verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. 
Inference follows on evidence, and a truthful witness is always artless and disdains effect. The gospel's evidence for the resurrection is of this class, and as a lawyer, I accept it unreservedly as the testimony of truthful men to facts with which, uh, to facts they were able to substantiate. And one part of that that he talks about is the writers of the Bible, of the Gospels, of the letters, never put themselves up on a pedestal. This section even ends with Paul saying he doesn't deserve to be saved. He persecuted the church. If Paul was making this up, and I've heard people say that Christianity is Paul's religion, that Jesus had nothing to do with what we call Christianity today. If that's the truth, if Paul invented Christianity, he would present himself a lot better than he does. He presents himself as a scoundrel. He presents himself as a blasphemer. He presents himself as someone who stood against God his whole life against Jesus Christ until Jesus Christ said, enough, and saved him. And then he became this person, but he remembers who he was. And so the, the idea that these writers are not perfect will actually lead credence to what they say, that if they say, I saw this, but I'm a sinner, if I degrade myself, that actually adds weight in the court system of, uh, <clears throat> of what you say being true. You have people like Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel, an atheist, raised in an atheist household. He didn't like how Christianity had an impact on the world the way that it did. He thought Christianity was a infection, if you will. And so he set out, he was a journalist, he was trained in journalism, and he set out to disprove Christianity. He wanted to write a series of books saying how stupid Christians were, basically. That was his goal. And so he begins to investigate, and he investigates the Bible, and he investigates early church writings, and he talks to Christians, and he goes to church services, and he investigates, and he investigates, and all of this that goes on, he, he says that um, it is a time to... Uh, it is a time to believe because he believes now. And the first book he wrote was called A Case for Christ in which he goes through all of his investigations and it proves to himself and he wants to prove to you that Jesus Christ is who he said he is and in fact he died on a cross and is raised from the dead. And then he goes on to write a case for faith and a case for the church and a case for all these things. And he says there's honest-to-goodness evidence that if you want to become a Christian, you can stand on evidence that Jesus Christ is who he said he is, that he died on the cross for your sins, 
and that he rose again on the third day. And so there is mounting evidence. Now, when I was growing up, the, the basic anti-Christian talk in the late 60s, early 70s, was that it just wasn't true, that Jesus Christ didn't exist, that the Bible is a bunch of fairy tales, things of this nature. It has shifted nowadays people through Lee Strobel's work and others believe that there is evidence, so now they say it doesn't matter. That Jesus Christ, sure, he existed. Sure, maybe he even did miracles, but it doesn't matter in today's world, in today's life. We have moved beyond that. And of course, if you look at the world, moving beyond that doesn't turn out too good. Our world is chaotic and it's strange and it's horrific and sinful upon sinful upon sinful. And so, what does Peter say? Who are these witnesses that saw Jesus who was raised from the dead? In verse 5 he says, and that he appeared to Cephas. Now Cephas is a little used name that's in the Bible. If you recall and you read your history, you know that Jesus spoke three languages. Paul spoke three or four languages. That you had to speak multiple languages to survive back then. Jesus spoke Hebrew because he had to do the temple things. He had to read Hebrew scripture. He also spoke Greek because he had to go into the marketplace and he had to meet Gentiles. And when he was talking to the woman at the well, for example, a Samaritan woman, he was probably speaking Greek. That was the street language of the day. And the foundational language, if you will, is Aramaic. Everybody spoke Aramaic uh, in Israel. Everybody spoke Aramaic in Egypt. Uh, if you go back and read uh, about Abraham, Abraham spoke a form of Aramaic. There is a language called Aramaic that has survived throughout the Middle East that it was your slang, if you will. It was your, you know, locker room talk. It was, I don't know, it was the stuff that people just talked about when they talked about stuff. Cephas is Aramaic for rock. Peter is Greek for rock. So people say, aha, we've got two names that say rock, so this must be Peter. So some people, a lot of people, say this is Peter. Other people say, no, it's a new guy named Cephas. Okay, We don't know who this was, but if it's Peter, Peter's put first in the list of eyewitnesses. And so we have to ask the question, why? Why is Peter put first in the list, a list of witnesses? And then you remember back to his denying Jesus three times. That that was a nasty, nasty, blasphemous, traitorous denial that Peter did while Jesus was being led away. He denied Jesus three times as was predicted. Jesus called it being sifted like wheat, what Peter went through. And so it's believable that Jesus would appear and call Peter aside and meet with him personally to restore him. And so people kind of look at that and you see that Peter 
uh, when they're, when they're uh, fishing and they see somebody on the shore and it's Jesus, Peter jumps out of the boat. He's fully restored. He's fully part of the family again. And he's the first one to go meet Jesus. Then he appeared to the twelve. And if you read the, the, where this fits in context, there's only eleven disciples. When Jesus went to the upper room, when he went to the locked upper room, there's only eleven disciples. And so you look at this and you go, aha, the twelve is like the name of their club. Uh, they would call themselves the Twelve. People would call them the Twelve, even if there was only eleven. And then after Jesus ascended, they did have eleven. And if you count, uh, they added another one for twelve, Mattathias. And then if you count Paul, there's actually thirteen apostles at this time. But they're still called the Twelve. That is the name of their group. So Jesus met with them, and that's covered in is covered in acts of where Jesus would appear in a locked room and he would disappear from a locked room. Then it says 500, 500 people at the same time. People look at that and I've heard actual people say, ah, it's mass hallucination. But if you have people like David Copperfield make the Statue of Liberty disappear, he only had 12 people in the audience to make the thingy uh, diamond head in Hawaii disappear, there's only 24 people in the audience. He had to keep it small to keep their focus in the right spot. Jesus had 500. That's an unruly crowd back then. And Jesus appeared, and they all saw. Then Paul says, many are still alive. That is an offer for you, the reader, to go find one or 10, or 20, or 100, and say, what did you see? What was it like? What did Jesus say? And you can, you can investigate them because they're still alive. Of course, now they've all passed away. But back then, Paul is saying, these are people you can go interview. These are people you can go interrogate. And he wants them to go do it. And the the belief is, because there's nothing written about this not happening, the people did that. And the resurrection of Jesus spread like wildfire. Then he says to James, there are two Jameses that are disciples. There's James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the fishermen. And there's also James, the half-brother of Jesus. James, the half-brother of Jesus, was not a believer. In fact, in the Gospels, he tries to pull Jesus away from the crowds and say, nah, come back home. And so it's nice to say that it's the half-brother of Jesus, that Jesus actually met with him, probably one-on-one, -on -one, gave him all the information he needed, and then you have James writing the book of James, for example. That is the half-brother of Jesus. And so, in that way, it's somebody that you can talk to. And you can say, wait a minute, here's somebody who was an atheist. And that Jesus was able to turn around. That has weight to people who would read this. To disciples and followers who would know James. That would have something to hold on to. 
And then it says, to one who was untimely born, and that is Paul. Paul was uh, converted by Jesus Christ directly on the road to Damascus. Jesus had died on the cross, was buried on the third day. He rose again. He ascended 40 days later. Sometime after this, he appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, Damascus, knocked Paul over. Paul was blind for three days. And through it, God said, through Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ said, you're going to change direction. You're not going to be a persecutor. You are going to be the missionary to the Gentiles. And so Paul says, that he, in fact, saw Jesus Christ resurrected, which he did. And so this is enough evidence for many to say, I've tried to prove Christianity wrong, but I cannot. Christianity is true. And so what is true about all this? What do we care about this? What do we apply this to in our lives? Jesus Christ died for your sins. We are sinful. We do what we want. We are selfish. God gives us even ten commandments and we can't follow them. He tells us what to do and we say, no, I don't want to do it. That is throughout history. People are sinful and rebellious against God. Christ died for that. Jesus took your sins on him as if he sinned himself. The Bible says he became sin for us because of all the sin that was put on him. He died. He actually really, honest and truly, physically died. He didn't swoon. He wasn't a hologram. He really honestly died. He breathed his last. On the third day, he rose leaving all your sins in the grave, basically. And on the third day, he met with Mary Magdalene and Peter and everybody else that it says in this group, proving that he was alive. Forty days later, he ascended into heaven. Then he appeared to Paul and made Paul the missionary to the Gentiles. And all of this to say, the offer of Jesus Christ is as true today as it was then. And it is the offer that we bring to the world as the gospel. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, we praise you that Christianity is true, that we are believers in a living Savior, that we do not have to go to a grave and mourn your passing for you are alive, and you are alive and standing at the right hand of God the Father, where you are interceding for us every day. Lord, we praise you for that, and ask your blessing on the remainder of the day as we celebrate this Easter. We ask this through the blood of Christ. Amen.
Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 180 Llewellyn Boulevard, San Lorenzo, California. Our Sunday morning service is at 1045 a.m. Our website is livingfreetoday.org and our phone number is 510-278-2622. May God continue to bless you as you serve your King. God bless.